When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia. Movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. Hello and welcome to the Spike Podcast. I'm Fraser Myers and with me as ever we have Spike's editor, Tom Slater. Hello. And Spiked columnist, Ella Whelan. Hi. Coming up on the show... Canada's freedom convoy, the crisis in Ukraine, the EU's assault on Poland and Hungary, and the Tory war on woke. So this week, at the beginning of this week, Justin Trudeau launched a serious crackdown on the Canadian freedom convoy. He used some extraordinary emergency powers to essentially treat these protesters as terrorists, more or less. Tom, uh, you've been following this story quite closely. What have you made of it? We just sort of poured kerosene on on the fire and made such dramatic and authoritarian intervention that even following where Trudeau has been going during the pandemic and during this particular protest and this particular crisis, I think was surprising to a lot of people. Um, So as you say, you invoked this Emergencies Act um, for the first time in its kind of current form, as far Mm. as I understand it, allowing... um, all sorts of different measures to be implemented to try and bring the protesters to heel. So um, banks can now freeze um, accounts linked to the protesters without even having to get a court order. The police have given more powers to fine and to uh, arrest protesters, particularly the more disruptive ones. And there's also been um, discussions about again, kind of further restricting how they can get funds and this being part of the kind of broadening of their funding of terrorist mm. activities. So this is really incredibly extreme stuff. And it was what I I think one of the things that was so striking about it, even though we sort of know this and we've been talking about this a long time, is just how incredibly authoritarian these kind of centrist technocrats are and how much of a free pass they get Mm. from the kind of international liberal human rights set. I mean, there's been barely a whimper of protest, certainly not from other um, Western leaders, when this is a remarkable escalation. I mean, to treat your own citizens as basically a domestic terrorist threat is an incredibly serious thing to do. And yet we've seen it in America happen, we're seeing it in Canada, and yet barely a whimper of protest from anywhere else in the world. So it, it does seem that you can indulge in all kinds of deeply authoritarian measures so long as you're a photogenic liberal, it seems like. That's definitely one of the takeaways from this week. And it, the crackdown is very much addressed you know, in progressive language. I mean, mm. the excuse is that these people are far right, that they're racist, transphobic, misogynistic. I mean, what have you made of that? That kind of, you know, we've always said that wokeness, so to speak, is has an authoritarian bent, but here it's really explicit, that link. It's really explicit. And it's, it's such a distraction tactic because it, the protests are not anything to do with the row about trans ideology or uh, critical race theory in schools or any of those sort of quote unquote woke things. It's about mandates for coronavirus vaccines. It's about the uh, coronavirus restrictions that have been in place um, throughout Canada. And so the the government is not even dealing with the issue at hand. Mm. It's just like saying, no, 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 we don't want to have that row. So we're just going to call you um, a racist or a transphobe. It's like shorthand for you're a bad person. I think it's becoming increasingly clear that this is pretty much um, 
t- action taken by Trudeau because it's he sees this as a battle for him. It's all about himself. It's incredibly narcissistic. Whereas other more sensible or perhaps more in touch politicians, more in touch with reality politicians would see that there is a genuine, whatever you think about some of the truckers, you know, some pictures show them, um, you know, go, as you pointed out, Tom, going around on b- bouncy castles or, <laughs> you know, doing things that are certainly not kind of like terrorist um, actions. But on the other hand, I'm sure there are a lot of Ottawans who are quite pissed off at this point and would just quite like their streets to get back to normal. There's a push and pull here. You know, we can think of other protests, for example, when uh, Extinction Rebellion people were shutting down Alga Square annoyed the hell out of me. But that, you know, there is a there's a discussion to be had there about the freedom of protest and public nuisance. But that's not what he wants to do. What he's mm. seeing this as a judgment on him, Justin Trudeau, as uh, as a politician. And if he gives any ground to any kind of sense that freedom of protest is an important part of a democracy, then it's like he's conceding with, within himself. And it's leading to very dark um, ends because the precedent to set using these kind of emergency laws should make all politically active people shiver whether or not you do support the uh, the kind of actions and the desires of these particular truckers. And Tom, I mean, what do you make of the way that it almost feels as if power is kind of coalescing against the protests mm. in, in, in the sense that, you know, this, this week we're talking about the state crackdown, but in previous weeks we've talked about big tech getting yeah. involved, um, you know, that kind of thing. No, you kind of see all of the sort of different parts of the sort of elite and the and sections of the new elite kind of coalescing against them as you say so there was the GoFundMe thing which was so striking because not only um basically depriving the truckers of their millions of dollars of donations that mm. they managed to amass but at one point even suggesting that um, people had to apply for their refund if they made a donation if they didn't they would just kind of reallocate it to what they called credible causes which is an, inc- <laughs> you know, an inc- incredibly arrogant thing to do. Um, as you say, there's the police response, there's a response from the Canadian state. Um, even before these new measures came in, there were certain Canadian banks that were freezing accounts and mm. all this kind of thing. So it's really quite striking. I mean, of course, the, you know, there's aspects to this protest, which are, of course, disruptive, which are about blocking bridges, which are about um, trying to seriously bring the government to heel. And of course, you know, there's always going to be consequences when you kind of break the law and you do these kinds of things. I mean, but as far as I understand it, I'm willing to be corrected on this, but like the Ambassador Bridge, which is one of these main kind of points of connection, mm. one of the main ones between Canada and um, the US, was already in the process of being cleared, I think, when, yeah. when these um, rules came in. And this is about depriving the entire protest of these funds. And as you were saying, Ella, you know, you look at a lot of the live streams, much of this is quite kind of carnivalesque, <laughs> if anything else. It's people parked up, um, again, dancing, singing, waving flags, all the rest of it. So it's such an overreaction. And I think, as you say, it shows that Trudeau is kind of in a bit of a fight for his own survival. Various other kind of um, premiers of different provinces have um, been far more kind of conciliatory. Um, but again, I think we're just really seeing how illiberal liberals if, as which makes it's, it's the slightest more tame way we might have talked about these kinds of people before when push comes to shove and certainly in the context of the pandemic and its aftermath how brazen and authoritarian a group of mm. um, people and lawmakers those are i mean the thing that uh, surprises me and we talked about this in the podcast last week is how once again in the face of another populist revolt you just see the left ride in behind the political class, the yeah. kind of centrist political class, and just be their useful idiots, buy all this bollocks about this all being about transphobia or racism mm-hmm. or whatever, and get lend moral authority to the crackdown effectively, even if they might not, you know, actually support it formally. They've helped bring this about. So again, it's that kind of coalescence of all of those interests against the truckers, but part of that regrettably also includes people 
who in another moment might like to believe that they would be at the forefront of a revolt such yeah. as this, but not this kind of one. It's the wrong kind of one as far as I can say. <laughs> and obviously there's a kind of class dynamic to these protests. I mean, Ella, I mean, what do you think it says about the broader class dynamic of COVID restrictions, COVID mandates, that kind of thing? Yeah, well, we, we know that throughout the successive lockdowns in this country and in other countries, um, the first one, maybe everyone seemed to be in it together. There was a sense of national spirit or international spirit. And then it became apparent that the people who could afford to stay at home were of a particular um, wealth and security. It was kind of middle class people who enjoyed um, having the parks and streets clear to go on their walks and having this kind of um, disassociated sort of state in society where everyone, the help and everyone who does all the dirty stuff kind of stays away and wears masks. And we, I mean, maybe I'm being a bit crude here, but you know, the <laughs> successive pictures we have now of um, public events where you have all the celebrities having a great time. And then there's all the kind of waitresses and waiters on the edge with masks shows that there has been a class dynamic throughout this pandemic. The Super Bowl at this weekend being the yeah, example. Pictures in, of in Alan DeGeneres mm. and all these people who've c- celebrated mask wearing conspicuously maskless but <laughs> nevertheless you you know there has been tom makes a good point that there has been genuine and conflictual but genuine upsurges of kind of populist interest over the last few years we've had as we mentioned the podcast last week the gilet jaune we've had protests across europe we've had um some of the protests in trafalgar square in um in london over the course of the pandemic there's you know not all of them are perfect not all of them are kind of copied out of a how to have a brilliant kind of working class left-wing revolt um, Mm. playbook but when is life ever like that and instead of trying to engage with this quite exciting moment where lots of ordinary people are saying hang on a minute i'm not going to go along with these undemocratic measures you're affecting my life finding their voice that thing that the left always says they want to help people to do (laughs) no one wants to hear from them because they're challenging the norm which is that the idea that politics should be done in the fray of the public sphere not by technocrats the reason why so many people on the liberal left like trudeau is because he just keeps it safe he has this kind of um kind of crib sheet of what's right you know saying nice things about trans people saying bad things about white privilege whatever it is and that's how you keep politics safe and neatly tied up when you start to talk about it in a public square or hold a protest or throw questions out that's when it gets dangerous Mm. because it might not go the way you want and i think this is really revealing the cowardice of some of those who call themselves progressives yeah that's at the heart of it tom isn't it these truckers are rudely intruding into our nice (laughs) politics that should be you know managerial and technocratic and exactly contested and as far as the left concerned if anything like this is going to happen it should be led by them you know and anything that isn't um, really upsets them i think it's it's so right to say this is about so much more than vaccine mandates at Mm. this point obviously that particular rule that was brought in where unvaccinated truckers going from the u.s to canada have to quarantine um on when returning was the kind of spark that lit the fuse and all the rest of it. But it has just brought to the fore all of those kind of burning issues, which were at the heart of the COVID response, reflected a lot of about society already. But you effectively had authoritarian measures brought into the end of controlling a virus that many people across the world were happy to go along with um, in order to, to, um, again, protect one another and to protect people in their society. But then to see that you had this whole policy which relied on the working class is continuing to work effectively, Mm. continuing to have to brave, you know, uh, the pandemic world. And then for their trouble, even as we're moving out of this pandemic, certainly in a lot of Western highly vaccinated societies, they're finding their rights still being taken away. They're being deprived of their livelihoods if they don't comply and they're being smeared as fascists to boot. Mm. Um, 
so much of this is just, it's kind of, um, it was sparked by the vaccine mandates issue, but it's about so much more than that, definitely. Instacart shoppers know groceries. They know that you can't make guacamole with rock-hard avocados. They know how to quickly find those peanut butter pretzels you can never find. And they keep you in the know by giving you updates about your order along the way. Let Instacart shoppers help take shopping off your plate so you can get time and energy back for what really matters. Visit instacart.com or download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders. Offer valid for a limited time. Minimum order $10. Additional terms apply. Instacart. Add life to cart. So let's talk about the supposedly imminent um, invasion of Ukraine by Russia. Funnily enough, we were actually given a date for this invasion. It should have taken place on Wednesday depending on what newspaper you read, either at 1am or 3am. Now, obviously, we're hostage to fortune uh, talking about this now because it could happen at any time. But it notably hasn't happened, Tom. I mean, what what is going on there? Oh, I mean, it was so striking, just as you say, all of these reports that were kind of building it up almost as if it was like um, a build up to like the Super Bowl or something like mm. this. You know, as Tim mentioned in his piece on Spike this week about all this. You had again, you know, in the, the sun was giving one time, as you were saying, the mirror was giving another Reuters having this live feed um, on <laughs> Kiev. I mean, almost people can watch along and see, you know, the bombs being dropped or whatever it was. It was really quite strange. And then this response that we've seen throughout the um, crisis, which is on the ground in Ukraine and on the ground in Russia, the, the mm. mood being so incredibly different. Yeah. Um, first of all, you had a lot of pretty much trolling from a lot of Russian officials saying that, you know, if the Western media knows our schedule for all of our various invasions over the next year. Could they let us know so we can plan our holidays? Um, but also in Ukraine, nowhere near that kind of level of threat felt. I mean, obviously, you know, there's an argument that there is a kind of case of suggesting that, um, of course, they don't want to kind of further kind of spook the markets or to, or to push away any kind of investment and all the rest of it by making themselves into a war zone in many people's minds. But even in Russia, which is another part of this which doesn't get talked about enough, if... Putin was going to do something as crazy as kind of invade Ukraine, you know, roll yeah. the tanks all the way up to Kiev. This would be incredibly unpopular. You know, it, it, just the images of, you know, um, Russian soldiers being sent home in body bags could be something that genuinely does it for him, regardless mm. of how, you know, um, irreproachable his, his position often seems to be at a certain point. And yet the Russian public, from what you see from even Western journalists on the ground, are not being prepared for this kind of conflict. It's not the main topic of discussion when it is being talked about. It's mocking Western leaders and uh, Western media for acting as if we're, you know, Europe is once again, once again on the brink of war mm. when that's certainly not the mood on the ground. So it just it really spoke to the um, complete kind of disparity in, in atmosphere and reactions that you see on both sides at the moment. Ella, what have you made of it? I think it's really revealed the kind of ignorance and the kind of rep- reprehensible behaviour among the British political class. Some of the things that have happened over the last week have been really shocking. I mean, Liz Truss has showed herself up to be not only kind of an idiot with a s- too small grasp of geography on the one hand, embarrassing mm. herself on the trip by um, kind of trying to grandstand with Russian officials and not even knowing what regions are where and owned by who and all the rest of it, but also just um, using... Russia as a means of, I think Tim Black called it the kind of warmongering pantomime or something Mm. like, using it as a stage from which to, you know, a little bit of mounting her own potential leadership campaign. There's, you know, despite the fact that we're supposedly on the brink of war, we're talking about how much Liz Truss looks like Margaret Thatcher in her fur hat. Um, 
kind of prancing around taking pictures at a time that's supposed to be of serious, you know, international politics is supposed to be seriously on the brink. You have Ben Wallace um, being reprimanded only really slightly for for talking about linking things to appeasement and talking about there being a whiff of Munich in the air. You know, just basically treating Russia like trash, which you don't have to be the biggest fan of Putin, of which none of us are, mm. to suggest that this is probably not a good, um, if you really are dealing with the, th- the person you think you're dealing with, which is some kind of maniacal, evil guy who's going to do ridiculous things like ru- um, run troops up to Kiev. What? Why are you treating him so badly then? Where why is are you the calling diplomacy? Him Hitler, essentially. Yeah, yeah. It, it, essentially, why are you making him out to be this kind of folklore devil? Um, and you know, throughout this, I think there's been a level of incredulity among um, Russian politicians and indeed among Russian citizens who are just saying, "Why the hell does the West hate us so much? Why do British politicians and American politicians want to carry on the kind of?" actually carry on the politics of the Cold War to a certain extent, which is to use Russia as a means of trying to garner domestic credibility. And um, the kind of the level of warmongering or actually just the kind of the blasé attitude about warmongering um, among the British media has also been shocking. Had people today... In, in newspapers on a TV show saying, oh, well, it was supposed to be D-Day yesterday and it wasn't. It's like, hang on a minute. We're, do you, you know, just to get right down to the basics, we're actually talking about the prospect of lives being lost. Do you not care about that? Do you not care about stability, international stability? So it's pretty depressing, mm. actually. It seems to be quite a, a binary view in the British media that um, you're either gung-ho for war with Russia, in which case you're very smart and intelligent, or... You know, if you're wary of this uh, chatter, then you're an appeaser of Putin. You're his best you're, friend, you're, yeah. You, 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 you're a traitor. You're yeah. a traitor. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, it's it's absolutely demented. Um, and you see this incredibly circular argument going on because people who've you know taken in an interest in Ukraine for about the past five minutes have decided that this is the narrative, and any deviation from it is to be punished. I mean, uh, Mary Djevsky writes for Spike was on the radio the other day discussing a lot of this. And every time, you know, using a lot of her expertise, you know, a former mm. Moscow correspondent, raises any of these points, you know, the fact that um, Putin is on record saying that he recognises the sovereignty of Ukraine or whatever, so, well, you're going to just take his word for it. <laughs> or saying that, you know, fundamentally, this is not within, um, this is a question of kind of Russia's um, interests. It sees it as its security interests. Again, the westward expansion or the eastward rather expansion of of NATO is the provocation as far as Russians are concerned. Even raising that, it was like, what are you just some sort of Putin stooge at this point? Even to just kind of discuss in a rational way mm. the fact that Russia has a position, it has its own national security interests as it sees it, and that it can therefore see the actions of the West from the 90s onwards as a provocation. Even talking about that is, again, it's just to provide a sop to the new Hitler. This is not how you have a proper discussion. Mm. It's incredibly reckless. And you also know that even if, because, you know, who knows what could happen? This is still a genuinely unstable situation. You have a rising of tensions like this, not least because of all of the provocations from the Western side. You know, there's always a, there's always a chance that something could light the spark, as it were. You know, I don't, unlike all of these people who write these endless features getting inside Vladimir Putin's head, I don't claim to know what he is, what he's thinking and what he's actually planning to do, whether he would be mad enough to do something like this. But at the same time, you do kind of get a sense that even if the worst did happen, you know, all of these people will just get bored and talk about something else in five minutes' yeah. time. And the consequences of it, even if this doesn't come to anything militarily at the moment, are still incredibly serious for Ukraine um, because of the fact that its economic situation is going to be 
incredibly difficult the longer it's presented as a would-be war zone all the time. Mm. And this is something that President Zelensky has talked about and has basically constantly tried to kind of calm down what he refers to as the sort of Western alarmism. Because even absent, you know, Russian tanks rolling on Kiev, this whole standoff as it's being presented has serious consequences in the here and now. But these pundits don't care about it. They're estimated, Ukrainians, the Ukrainian economy is estimated to be losing between two and three billion pounds a month because obviously... You know, with there being a potential war, you can't get insurance. You can't, you know, mm-hmm. get flights there. You completely destroyed their tourism industry, and you know, it's 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 great that people are going about their business and are not afraid. But it's interesting how the media has spun that as them being overly stoical or something like that. Mm-hmm. When really the reality is they don't believe that an invasion is imminent. Yeah, as opposed to the West. I mean, Tim makes the point that having just left a forever war in Afghanistan, the West seems willing to kind of recreate another one, institute another one in the form of there being not necessarily if there's bombs dropping from the sky and tanks on the ground, but that this tension around Russia is just something that's a given. You know, it's been described as the new normal, Mm. as if there's no end in sight to it. I mean, we don't often agree with Jeremy Corbyn and Diane Abbott on this podcast. Mm. Um, However, the kind of talking about making this into a binary, the spectacle that's gone on with the Labour Party's response to this um, over the last week with Keir Starmer slamming the Stop the War Coalition and call it basically Corin Corbyn and Abbott kind of Putin kind of brown noses at this point for say for suggesting that maybe the West and NATO have some kind of responsibility in the actions that they've taken over the last few years of ex- of kind of expansionist projects. Um Keir Starmer comes out and says, no, we are absolutely in support of NATO. Basically, we're right behind the Conservative government. And if we don't do something about this, then you're kind of, uh, you're appeasing war. You're you're suggesting that there's something credible in, in Putin's threats. Which is, you know, it just goes to show you that their all sense of proportionate proportionality and principle in this has been lost. Never mind the fact that Keir Starmer himself went and um, marched with Stop the War Coalition against the Iraq War has a, has you know used to have a history of being having some kind of principle in relation to Western intervention, but seems to have ditched it all. Keir Starmer wants to remodel the Labour Party. He said in an interesting op-ed around the two ends. NATO and the NHS. Now, there's a, there's a lovely thought. Our NATO. Our NATO. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so let's talk about another part of Europe, Central Europe this time. The, the European Union's kind of culture war, legal battle with uh, Hungary and Poland has, has um, gone to the next stage. The European Court of Justice has essentially ruled that it's okay for the EU to withhold funds from countries like po- Hungary and Poland if they're seen to be breaking the EU's core values in some way. I mean, this has some potentially very serious consequences, particularly with the Hungarian elections uh, coming up in April. Tom, what have you made of it? Well, as you say, it's just a kind of another um, moment in that kind of ongoing battle um, between Brussels and between these kind of wayward Central and Eastern European states as it sees it. Um, so Hungary and Poland losing this legal challenge. It's, you know, it's one specific mechanism by which this is mm. happening, as you were saying, kind of it being uh, the ECJ rule and it's legitimate to um, deprive these countries of these funds if it doesn't meet these rule of law standards and all the rest of it. But there's various different mechanisms. There's various different arguments. The broader context is over everything from, again, the kind of um, questions about the independence of the judi- judiciary in Poland. Mm. In Hungary, you have this big blow up over... Um, LGBT, the promotion of the LGBT to under 18s that they've brought, you know, tabled a new law last year, which caused huge consternation. I mean, you had Mark Rutter, the Dutch Prime Minister, 
um, suggesting that Hungary had to be brought to its knees over this and it had no business being in the European Union. So at its core, it is this argument over self-determination as to whether or not, um, by dint of being a member of the European Union, that Brussels can dictate and um, force you to walk a certain line, uh, not only in terms of, say, the setup of your trade or um, the economic regulations you might follow, but even your values, really, um, how you happen to run your country, the nature of your state and all the rest of it, um, even down to these kinds of moral questions, mm. effectively. And as you say, particularly with the Hungarian election approaching, that this being of huge significance for the broader EU project because there is this huge kind of rogues gallery coalition of everyone from the far left to actual fascists who have teamed up to try and um, mm. topple Orban. There's a genuine sense that this is this would be a huge win for Orban if he, if he goes. And so, of course, the, the message that is clearly being sent is to suggest you know, we were willing to deprive Hungary of these funds. So therefore, you know, if you want your coronavirus support money, which is being withheld from Hungary and Poland at the moment, yeah. you better do the right thing come April. So it's incredibly serious. But at the core of it, um, aside from the kind of technical niceties, if, if you like, is this question of self-determination, which was, we all know is the EU's probably least favourite thing. <laughs> Ella? Yeah, the question is, which do you prefer? The problems going on within Poland and Hungary, you know, considerable issues of Orban supposedly giving out money to his friends and family rather than um, and kind of soaking up all bids for um, money for institutions and projects in a kind of cronyistic attempt and that being a, a problem with democracy or you know, what's going on within the European Union, which is, as Tom points out, heads of state, but indeed MEPs going around and saying, hang on a minute, we have to do something about these pesky Hungarians and what's going on in this nation, sort it out. You know, both are have questions around who has democratic control, who has political control in a country. And we've always argued that whatever happens within nation states, and you know, certainly in the UK, we're no fans of the British government, it's always better to be able to hold the country, the, the government that rules your country to account, mm. rather than an unelected institutions like the ECJ, like the EU. There is um, a real arrogance also towards the way in which m- the kind of discussion about funds is being had. The fact that it's, uh, I mean, it's now a part of the larger budget, but the fact that initially it was the suggestion that coronavirus relief funds would be withheld. I mean, that's that's pretty dark, particularly in countries like Hungary and Poland, which aren't necessarily, haven't had as many resources as other European nations, of which, you know, particularly in relation to vaccine rollouts and stuff, there is still a problem. Withholding relief at a time when the European Union's meant to be portraying itself as this great kind of benevolent international kind of big warm hug mm. of a of an institution that helps out all its nations pr- punctures that but also the the kind of idea that uh, there's been reports kind of scathing reports from a, one um, a while ago by Timothy Garton Ash in the Guardian about the idea that you know all these sort of particularly in Hungary these Hungarians they kind of, they're a bit stupid, a bit like Brexit voters. They like to take EU money and they're fine with being funded by them, but they never wave any flags. And when you go to Orban rallies, they're also disparaging of the EU. And don't they realise, it was a bit like what was said to kind of people in the UK, you know, well, don't you know you get all your money for farming from the EU? So what, yeah, why are you yeah. voting against it? There's a misunderstanding of the, the nature of the force that the EU has, the kind of political sway it has, but also the fact that there's a kind of, you know, nations are stuck between a rock and a hard place because of the fact of the imposition of the political power and financial power that the European Union has. So, you know, pick your bad democracy. One, despite the fact that Auburn's gone some way to um, making elections tricky, that you can um, 
deselect at the ballot box or people who you'll never meet who sit in closed doors in Brussels conspiring to overturn your elected leaders. So let's talk a bit about the ongoing sort of protracted Tory war on woke. Uh, There's been two uh, interventions this week, one from Tory party chair Oliver Dowden, who said that this woke psychodrama is uh, weakening the West. And we also had Education Secretary Nadeem Sahawi, who's issued new guidance, um, which he hopes will deal with the problem of activist teachers in the classroom. Tom, what have you made of it? Um, well, <laughs> as ever, it's just so damp. Isn't yeah. It? I mean, and often quite hypocritical. I mean, it was only last week that we were talking about uh, Nadine Dorries um, trying to make certain forms of comedy illegal. And then you have her predecessor in that role, Oliver Dowden, pop up, make another one of his um, speeches about freedom of speech and wokeness <laughs> and all the rest of it. It's just, it's such a act at this mm. point, really. I mean, it's interesting because people talk about some of these quite unquote cultural issues as if they're kind of a frippery. It's something that the Tory party will just sort of make a lot of noise about as a means to... Um, get some votes or kind of gin up their base or get some nice headlines from right-wing press or whatever. Um, But there are some really important issues at play here. I mean, education is one of them. Mm -hmm. You know, this kind of slippage that you see between effectively education and indoctrination, you know, whether it's questions around gender, critical race theory, as it's generally referred to as whatever, where um, essentially incredibly divisive or at least contested ideas around even just the nature of who we are and how we should live in society is making its way into certain classrooms as if it's as uncontroversial as um, teaching geography or you know mm-hmm. this is the nature of the natural world or whatever um and it's a serious problem i mean the, again the response is pretty damp i mean there's um the government has already kind of reminded teachers and the teaching profession about their responsibilities towards impartiality again this new guidance making that clear Um, once again. But I mean, the tricky thing is, and arguably the thing that they can't really deal with that much, is unfortunately within certain professions, within certain institutions, this is just the sort of air they breathe now. They don't see the distinction. As I say, But the big problem you have to get over is people don't see this as politics necessarily. They see it as being a good person in terms of talking in these kinds of terms. But at the same time, there does need to be a pushback because while you do have that on the other side, the politicisation in some quarters is very explicit. You know, you think about the school strikes movement and teachers, you know, um, layering praise and refusing to reprimand kids who wouldn't show up to go and, you know, join Mm -hmm. Greta Thunberg in Parliament Square or whatever it might be. Mm. Um, All of this is so obvious, but at the same time, there's a lack of conviction in terms of tackling it and also a a lack of recognition that this is a much bigger fight than um, the Tory party in another press release and another wishy-washy piece of guidance would lead you to believe, I guess. Yeah. Ella? Yeah, well, I mean, the hypocrisy of the government is is quite staggering. I mean, Gareth Sturdy's piece in Spike this week really points that out, the fact that, you know, Zahawi himself instituted a new kind of science curriculum which had in it... Um, guidance for teachers to take action on the environment because you know the Tories just empowering students to take action the Tories want to greenwash everything and so you tell me how that's not being politically biased you know that that is green lighting um, teachers to be able to say yes go ahead and sack off maths class and go and hold your banner outside for the school climate strike so you know that and Gavin Gareth also points out Gavin Williamson trying to institute that kind of ridiculous anthem um, (laughs) to get kids to sing One Britain One Nation and British values in schools. So, you know, the Tories like it when it's there, the kind of the, the the politics they like being instituted, but not the politics they disagree with. You know, there is, there's a, a sort of a, 
infantilizing way of looking at education. I mean, politics is a central part of education. Any, particularly as you get to the older age of the spectrum, when you're up in sixth form, you kind of get to know the, what your teacher's political biases are. Most good teachers won't tell you, you know, who they vote for or anything like that. But you can have open conversations. The problem is that there's a disingenuous kind of uh, a note to all of the teachers who have come out in the last few days and said, oh, the government's having a chilling effect. Because any time a teacher does step outside the norm and try and have an open discussion, like the teacher in Batley and Spen, mm. who tried to have an open discussion about, um, you know, Islamist terrorism and Charlie Hebdo and, and all this kind of stuff, was sent into hiding. I mean, talk about you know, academic freedom among teachers, there was a startling silence um, at the beheading of Samuel Paty. You know, that, let's not pretend that teachers, that in particular teachers' unions, are champing at the bit to have open discussions yeah. about race or trans ideology or any like that, and they just can't. There is a level of kind of um, safety and uh, not, maybe not, I don't like the word indoctrination because I don't think that teachers are trying to hammer in their politics to kids, but there's a, a kind of... Um, a cowardice about actually trusting kids to have open discussions. There is a suggestion that particularly with race theory, what you have is a cohort of little racists coming in and you have to just kind of drum it out of them rather than actually um, giving kids the benefit of the doubt to be able to use education to open their minds. So, you know, the government are not going to solve this by issuing guidance after guidance. What's going to have to happen is teachers are going to have to start finding their voice to be able to say, all right, you think this, I think something else, let's have an open discussion about it. No, I think that I agree that the response from the teachers unions and everything else is so incredibly disingenuous um, because one thing that I'll say is, you know, this could chill classroom discussion. You mm. can't have an open discussion about politics. As you say, there's always going to be those kind of moments where, particularly with older students, you might have a teacher who might lean into their own particular views, maybe, or at least it starts to kind of show itself. You wouldn't want to necessarily chill that. Um, but at the same time, you know, let's be real about this. If you had a teacher at some sort of um, London school, which maybe some of the parents were quite well connected, who decided to have an open discussion with those students about whether or not biological sex is real or not, maybe leaning on one side rather than the other and on the side that the teachers unions wouldn't appreciate, do we really think that would stand? Do we really mm. think that wouldn't <laughs> be seen as an issue? It's obvious what's going on here. And I agree, you don't want to kind of make it sound as if schools are like just sort of indoctrination factories. But the problem with all of these ideas is that it has a predetermined conclusion and the aim is to inculcate children into those values. Yeah. It's not about saying, here's critical race theory, it goes back to Derek Bell, isn't it an interesting idea, let's talk about it. It's to say, you're white, you're black, you have different experiences because of that and we need to teach you to see that. Mm. Similarly with the gender stuff, it's about suggesting out of the gate, this, you know, there are X amount of genders, you may be one, let's talk about it, you know, rather than it being a kind of discussion about the issues, philosophical or biological therein. So there's so much disingenuousness on this particular question. And it's because pol it's not just that politics has gotten into schools, it's because a particular kind of politics has gone to schools and will brook no dissent. Yeah. And the biggest problem we're facing with all that is that a lot of people involved don't even necessarily see it that way. And I think that's the, that's the thing that's always going to make it so difficult to challenge, I guess. Thank you for listening to the Spike podcast. We're back every Friday and you can now watch us on video too. Check us out on YouTube or go via the Spiked website, which is spiked-online.com. See you next time.